Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Sarah Hightower, and we're discussing just a whole range of topics. So this show today is like the third in our kind of experimental series, or something that I would call an experimental series, where I find friends and mutuals that I, I'm very fond of listening to or uh, reading their, their analysis and their insight and bringing them on the show. So our first experiment was with Marc-Andre Argentino. So we just gave him this opportunity to come on the show and talk about what interests him. In that case, it was collecting materials in extremist spaces. Our second experiment was with our friends, Emmy and Alex on Gamergate. So that was an example of having a really important topic that hasn't really been picked over by academics or analysts or whatever, but very much known to researchers. And we wanted to have a conversation on that. And then our third show today is with Sarah, where somebody who is incredibly brilliant, incredibly insightful, we just bring them onto the show and just ask questions and start a conversation. So in this case, it might be, you might find it super insightful, or it might just be about wrestling. So we're going to see where it takes. And our fourth show in this experimental series is going to be a book club with Upchurch on Foucault's Pendulum. So I've been kind of experimenting with this idea of doing like a book club where we just sit down, we read a book and we kind of pick it apart. It's, I don't know how it'll go, but it, it just, you know, it just sounds fun and sounds interesting and sounds some, something like we would enjoy listening to. So with that being said, please welcome Sarah Hightower. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Scott. Big fan. Really glad to be here. I've been a fan for like, oh my God, man. Like at least before y'all were on a IFC, before y'all got the IFC show, like back when you were still Comedy Death Ray, yeah it's the ifc show really really made a difference <laughs> yeah no it was like i prefer like the reggie episodes but it was pretty cool when he brought on kid gunny too i don't like i try to love everyone and that's oh. what i love about comedy bang bang like it's just it's really just a positive place where we can all just get together a vibe <laughs> get into some laughs yeah it's we're very much known for our very positive happy vibe with that being said so you you're very much known to be a scholar of, I'm going to mispronounce it, Shinriko, that one, yeah, that one. <laughs> the, the infamous one. So if you could just walk us through, how did you, how did you get into studying Om? Like, was it like, like, tell us that story. No, I was a baby weeb on 9-11. I read a book. How does anyone get into anything? You read about it in an anime magazine when you're 10, and then you read a book after 9-11. An anime I magazine? Imagine that's how we're all here. Like, that's why. I mean, what, then what kind of fascinates you? What kept you going? I mean, at, at 10, you're cracking open, you know, an anime magazine. You're saying that that's kind of neato burrito, but I, I'm, I'm assuming you're a little older now, just a little bit. What, what, what kept you sort of engaged with it? What, what sort of fascinated you as, a, as an intellectual? Because as an intellectual, I guess you could say you want to understand something. You approach something because you want to understand it. And then I understood it and it clicked. And I was like, my God, he just like me. He just like me for real. It's like that meme. It was that, but I was a child and I was also very angry at certain things in my life and just in the world. And you want to understand what would make someone beat the hell out of you and your mom when you're like a 
little kid. You want to understand what makes somebody really racist. You want to understand what makes somebody blow up a bunch of kids next door or fly a plane into a building or release a bunch of sarin into the subway. And then it clicks and you kind of understand it emotionally, at least. You like, I read Lifton. I read Lifton's Destroying the World to Save It. And he kind of, he gets into the psychology of Ohm. And I'm like, okay, no, I understand what this man is putting down. And I see how we got from point A to point B to the Marnucci line. But like, you, you get that when like you're a kid. And I was just so fascinated with it. And so I tried to stick with it. But like, this is like 2001, the trials were still going. And there was hardly any information in English. And then back then, like we had to use like Babelfish translator, the Alta Vista, like those old machine translators. So I've been doing this since I was in like middle school and I've just stuck with it the entire time, basically. I took a few years off when it looked like they weren't gonna be executed. I was an idiot. <laughs> Cause uh, that ended up happening. But for a while we thought it wasn't. And uh, now I'm here. Thanks for having me on. Nothing funnier than comedy bang bang. <laughs> I'm workshopping a new character. I'm workshopping. It's called Complex PTSD Girl. It's <laughs> a lot about the terror. I really shouldn't laugh at that, but that. No, it's cool. No, you shouldn't because it's like, it's just not funny. It, you're right. But now, now in my head, it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm picturing a sketch comedy show where they have Complex PTS Girl and Podcast Guy. And then suddenly it just it'll take like a, a turn for the weird. And then you try to explain that to an audience and it's like, ah, like there's, it, it might like hit with like five people, I guess. But it, it's something that I, I find fascinating is the use of Lifton. Like he's so influential. And I, I, I feel like I, I came to Lifton kind of late, which is kind of a shame because he's, he's so influential, but at the same time, it's like so much of his, his cultic studies are like if I, if I remember correctly, it's Ulm, then it's North Korean prison camps in the, the big book that is over in the corner of the room that I can't remember the title. But when you take Lifton and you kind of pair it with your own personal experience, you know, how, how, do, you, how do we sort of understand extremism and cults? Like from your study of, and then sort of combining this with, with Lifton, did you find that did you, did you find that your study challenged what Lifton was saying, or do you, do you find it that it was very validating that what Lifton had written about was, was very true and very sort of real? I mean, I have a very pro-Lifton bias, but yeah, no, it all jived. And then I came back and I started like raising hell about QAnon. And then we all watched that happen in real time. So yeah, that three, four-year-old, like, what am I saying? Wait, sorry, let me rewind that. Yeah, that three or four-year span of just like an absolute fucking uh, slow-motion living hell, I was literally just like, I was checking off the things that Lifton has written. <laughs> it was, I've tried to go on shows, I've, I've tried to, that big book that you were talking about, the one where we, we get the brainwashing from. Like, it's right in the corner. We're going to edit this. <laughs> this is going to be a bit of a <laughs> Oh God, this is why you don't bring me on shows. But I mean, but I think it's important though. Like, Yeah, you... but like I have to warm up. Uh, <laughs> look at me. I'm a complicated lady. <laughs> I've got a lot of big thoughts. 
very, very important. Well, I mean, I mean, in the sense that like Lyft, I mean, Lyft and offer, like, I feel like when I read or engage with Lyftin, it's almost offering a sort of predictive power, right? So it's kind of, I felt like he, he wrote these things, they were all pre-internet, but then like, as you said, as we were kind of watching Q become Q, it was just like, you know, check boxes almost. But would you, I mean, like going back to, to Ulm, like, like when, you're, when you're kind of looking at Ulm and then looking at like Q, like how much of it was like, it was just direct comparison, right? So it's like, oh, here we go. Here's the apocalyptic vision. Here's the sort of othering, severe othering and this, and sort of, you know, here's everything. Here's the information control. Here's the cultic jargon. Here's the loaded language. Here's hmm. the isolation. Here's hmm. the anger vow group fuckery. Yeah. Right. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, is there... Yeah. Is there a point where that comparison kind of stopped being useful? Like in the sense, yeah. in the sense that when I when I begin to conceptualize Q, I think of it as very online, right? And I think as an amateur or as me as an amateur in this space, I usually have to associate a cult with a physical space, right? So like the MEK, Scientology are all like linked to physical spaces, if I'm understanding these correctly, right? They have compounds, apartment buildings, whatever, but Q was very much completely online. So how does, how do we kind of challenge Lifton or how do we sort of hammer, you know, Lifton's ideas into the online age? Because I would also like, like point out you're fairly young compared to the majority of cultic you know, studies like I, like Alexandra Stein was, is, you know, in her sixties, the other guests we've had on the show that talk, have discussed cults. And then Rothschild, when we had him discussing his book, he gets it in the ballpark. I feel like, like, you know, Q is just, you know, evolution of these other online conspiracy theories, but, but he kind of like, I, I want to kind of really understand what is the online capital O have, has done to our understanding of cults and extremism. But here's the thing though, like the online stuff hindered understanding of QAnon and, and it hindered like any sort of timely, I guess you could say like, I don't know, response that we could have had, which really messed with me for a few years there because I, I did, I would try and I got a uh, weird brain, big thoughts, bad words. So I guess I couldn't communicate well enough. And I, all I kept getting back for so long was, it's not a cult, get a new brand. It's not a cult, it's online. And then if anybody ever did want to say it was a cult, they just wanted to make a Jonestown joke. So it's really frustrating. And it's but like QAnon wasn't even the first online movement, like cultic type movement of its kind. <laughs> Ah, oh, it, it's really endlessly frustrating. And you can view it through the lens of like, you know, hoity-toity, you know, real academia like Lifton, or you can get down into the trenches and you can view it through the lens of like internet fandom stuff, like horror stories, like the Final Fantasy VII house, like that thing. 
are you can like rewind it back and you can just start picking through those very online conspiracy theories that started hooking our memos and pep peps back in the usenet era it's all gonna line up and anything that you bring from those perspectives like will be equally valid but no it's like just the public understanding of a cult having to be something with a physical compound instead of just like perhaps like 36 chambers of just like fucking mental imprisonment like this process that it actually is that fucks up your brain and changes the way your brain works and changes the way you perceive reality it was a bad time i've had a very bad time i'm rambling i'm sorry it's okay i mean like that's something that kind of fascinates me like the online its ability to distort reality i guess i mean like we were talking about it before like it, it almost strikes me like kayfabe and wrestling like it's huh? it's clearly very real but it's also fake it's also performative and it's mm-hmm. like you know it, to be honest I, I struggle to under like i i'm very online but i struggle to actually understand the online like it just like people kind of radicalizing into cults seems so alien to me like I obviously I try to refrain to from making fun of you know people who've joined Q and I, I try to refrain from mockery but then it's like like I just sit there like at the end of the day and I just struggle to understand it like like you know like reality has been distorted so much and then it's like all the person has to do is just log off like I like you know, it stays with you, especially if it's like something that you've come to fundamentally believe. And especially if you inside like assign this importance, this literal apocalyptic life or death, most important thing ever. And we just happen to be here in this moment for it. Importance to something. It's not like that Tyler, the creator tweet, like it's really not as simple as just looking away and, and walking away. You know, if you're already really wrapped up in it and it's very real to you, yes, they're fueled by hatred now, but there's also an element of fear. There's also this, like, have you ever been scared of something? Have you ever, like, been scared of something and you thought, like, you might immediately be in danger? Your, your, your fire flights kicked in. I think it's and that that adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah, your brain just floods with like these chemicals. If you just look at epinephrine and the norepinephrine, all this stuff, right? Okay, they're literally like it's like they're literally addicted to that. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> I can't imagine being in like that state of mind for two they don't years. See it as that, but yeah, no, it's like they've whether it's by design or whether it's just kind of how it works, it's it, it really, it's preying on people's emotions. And when you experience certain emotions, your brain gets flooded with certain chemicals. It's like the way people be, get addicted to Twitter, just scrolling endlessly, trying to get some likes and retweets and the joke about, you know, your serotonin lottery on social media, right? It's that same sort of principle. Like your I brain mean, makes you feel a certain way. Hate can tickle your brain in a certain way, fear, anger, sadness. I mean, that's, that's something that's really interesting because now, now it almost seems like you, I mean, I I think you're right. And I think Lifton is right, but it's like, you, you don't really need 
physicality or a physical sort of expression of a cult, right? You don't need those compounds. Rather, it's all occurring in your head. Is that, would that be accurate to say, or there, yeah, we can sort of extend this idea out a bit? You, you can have, I think, in Destroying the World to Save It, part of what made it click with me was when Lifton gets into Timothy McVeigh and the Turner Diaries and Oklahoma City bombing in the context of this own stuff and the cultic experience. And he literally describes Timothy McVeigh's obsession with Turner as his own cultic experience. Interesting. So, huh. I mean, so it's just like, you know, when conceptualizing a cult, it's, it really, I mean, like, I just, I, you know, I, I think about like, you know, Q's genesis, like it's sort of spreading, right? And it couldn't have been done without bringing the normies in. And like a lot of it, it seems to be linked to Facebook. A lot of it seems to be linked to aggregators and the ability to create a closed off information environment. So it's like, it's like, you don't necessarily need to close off the physical environment. You just have to kind of produce a closed information environment. Yeah, information control. Information control. But that information control isn't coming from a centralized leader, leader. Rather, it's kind of an individual's choices compounded with kind of the Facebook sort of algorithm or closed groups, or I, I hate blaming it on technology, but it just seems like really clear that recommendation algorithms and kind of closed groups on Facebook are partly responsible for creating that information seal. Yeah, but you also have to remember like the early days of QAnon when it was just starting to like reach out to, uh, let's see, the above top secret forums, that first big calm before the storm uh, subreddit, and what they called QTube at the time, the big QTubers uh, who were making like propaganda videos out of QDrops and stuff, like little scripts that they would just pay people to read with the appropriate imagery on screen and stuff like that. Uh, this is in the early days, like you had these influencers in the community, in this fledgling community, that would interpret these QDrops, the word of Q, who is bringing you the the jumbled up riddled word of the higher power itself right these influencers helped guide this community and helped shape the way i don't they kind of helped shape the q canon i guess you could say but also you had q he would come along and they would tweet or not tweet they would come along they would say things like disinformation is necessary like i remember being online with like Travis View and Mike Rothschild and some of the anti-Q people, the day that Q said disinformation is necessary. And I was like, nope, <laughs> we're fucked. Like we're totally screwed. That right there is gonna, that's cinching it. That's not good. Like <laughs> That's like the worst thing they could have said. Cause that, that officially just like disinformation is necessary, which means that like they no longer they're no longer even just like, they can't even be held to the pretense of like just telling the truth. They can say anything and it could like be wrong later. Or someone close to them now could say something and get excommunicated later. And it doesn't matter because disinformation is necessary. We just wrote ourselves a blank check that says we can lie to you. 
That's interesting. Like, like there's like the canon production. Like I assume that in Ulm, that the canon and the sort of liturgy, I don't, I don't know what to call it, the, like texts, right? Were more centralized, whereas like Q was, my understanding of it is that it's absolutely decentralized and that it kind of represents more of a fandom, right? Everybody gets to, you know, write a cute. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go on. I mean, like in the sense that like the way that Mike Rothschild describes it and the way that Q documentary describes it, like Canon production in, in, in the QAnon space was just like, was literally people writing comments or adding ideas and then the bread maker is kind of deciding these threads are kind of neato burrito and then promoting them. And then suddenly that would become canon. So when we think about canon production and, and text production, you know, how do we how do we conceptualize it then? Is it is the centralization decentralization mechanism not even that important, but rather it's just the myth and the ideas that are being generated and like take more primacy over it? I think that's a pretty valid way of looking at it, actually, when you put it like that, yeah. Okay. But I mean, like, it also makes research kind of difficult, right? Like, it's it's just, like, uh, hearing, well, I guess the the Alex and his group, the the Q historian people, like, it just it's just wild to me that they have been able to kind of put together a history, but you're not entirely sure if that's accurate, but it's, it's kind of wild. <laughs> Let's, oh God. Okay. We have the Bible today. Yes. Yeah. We, we, we have the Holy Bible. Yes. We have how many versions, how many translations, how many interpretations of, of like this, this, this one, I think one text. Right. <laughs> okay. And, and we, we have, we have, we have how many just Abrahamic religions? More than one, buddy. So, and then how many different. <laughs> How many different spinoffs do we have from that? Like, okay. And it's the same thing with Ohm. I mean, Ohm's stuff would evolve and change and contradict itself constantly. And sometimes some Ohm's, even the internal and some of their external propaganda releases would literally just be the result of Asahara and his inner circle sitting around doing little idea fantasy ping pongs back and forth. And then someone would just write that down. And they would pretend that it was like a study sesh. It may be a maybe a prophecy flash. And they would just print that. That would be like a book. And then how many ways do you okay? There are still people who fight over like the best ways to interpret it in its native language, like over in Japan. How many different ways do you think we could just translate the text as is into English over here? I mean, that's that's kind of interesting. Like the the idea of a translation of like translation, the translator also being the interpreter in the sense of they're not doing a straight mechanical interpretation. They're kind of putting their own like twist or interpretation either accidentally or yeah. Oh no, you have to, like you have to approach translating Japanese into English that way. If you you just do a a, a one-to-one like straight mechanical translation you're gonna have a bad time and you're you're not gonna translate it properly you're not going to convey what what it's actually trying to say but what i'm saying is like yeah no there's there are some things about q like we're never gonna know 
and and even a project as ambitious as a Q Origins project, which Q Origins project is amazing. Thank God it's happening. Thank God they're doing it. Somebody fund them. I don't know, but like, you were right. Like, there are still some things like we're never going to know for sure. But that's, I think that's okay. Because like, that's just kind of how it happens. I mean, that kind of fascinates me because it almost seems like some folks have, have suggested that like, you know, in order to destroy the power of Q, we need to kind of, you know, find out who started Q, dox them, and, and kind of point out that the king has no clothes, so to speak, or the grifter, it was just a grift or, or whatever. But it almost seems like that's impossible now. Like maybe that would have been possible in 2017, 2018, but now sitting in 2022, yeah, 2022, that's just not possible. I mean, is it important to kind of, to look at that origin and then say, you know, this isn't some high and mighty idea, rather it was just started by a grifter or started by a yoga instructor. Is there value in sort of, you know, getting to the source and then kind of pointing out that it's, it's not as genuine as you think it is to the, to a true, to a believer. I mean, it's not going to just like change their mind, but I still think it's important to know if it's possible, if it's possible to like really find out and, you know, like definitive documented, like just irrefutable proof. Right. Yeah. If that was possible, that'd be great. And I think it would be really helpful in some ways, but it was, it was never going to like just stop QAnon. Like even back in 2017, 2018, by the time you had people shutting down Hoover Dam to to demand their D class, like doxing Q wasn't gonna be enough. Like by then people were already like seeing Q's, like letter Q's being written in the sky and like chemtrails and crying tears of joy. Like but but by then, like no saying QAnon is a guy named Steve who lives in like Wisconsin in his mom's basement like that that's not gonna snap him out of it so something when I was listening to your other appearances and other podcasts that I had never realized was that Ohm had actually run people for parliament for the I think the Japanese diet please, uh-huh. please correct me if I'm wrong and no yeah I had to kind of rewind it and listen to it a couple times because I just couldn't believe my my what I was hearing because I was just like oh Japan has their own Marjorie Taylor Greene oh that's kind of cool universal human Uh experience (laughs) but (laughs) I don't know why why I'm laughing but the podcast kind of quickly moved from that but if you could could you dig into like like when Ohm ran for political office like what what was like what like as a cult what does that political platform look like what is is it just let me just yeah what is that what were they running on basically they were running on shoko 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 asahara shoko 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 asahara shoko he's our shoko he's the world shoko we're gonna give some money to schools or some shit but most importantly He's our Shoko. Have a balloon with Shoko's face on it. Shoko, 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 Shoko. Here's a song called Ganesha Gymnastics. We're going to wear Ganesha mascot outfits. Have we mentioned that Shoko Wasahara is also Ganesha? Anyway, vote Shoko and these other dudes. 
but mostly just Shoko. That was their main platform. And they had their own political party called Shinrito, which is the truth party. So instead of like the liberal democratic party or, you know, the Kometo, which is like some LDP dudes and Sakagakai, they just went and did their own thing. They pulled a happiness realization party before happiness realization party. And they had the Shinrito. And they ran uh, 21, 22, including Asahara for uh, lower house seats in the uh, general elections, 1990. So that was was great, watching the QAnon people start running for local elections in Congress. And I was just like screaming to everyone. And every time the number would go up and one of the uh, the DC people or the Q watchers would update their tally. Okay, well now we're up to, I'm like, we're gonna get to all numbers. And they're like, they'll never win. I'm like, Om didn't win, but this is, they might. <laughs> and then they did. So I got to watch that train wreck. And everyone, oh. and I'm like, I'm the Om girl. This is literally my job <laughs> to point out the similarity and make you care about it for more than four minutes because if they succeed where Om failed, things are not going to get better anytime soon. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I, I feel like the comparison okay. kind of fa- fades away. No. No. Okay. No. So had people out in Shoko Asahara, paper mache masks and uh, bright yellow Ganesha outfits and the balloons and the, you know, the Asahara song that like it was everywhere and people were just making fun of them because it was goofy. <laughs> like no one's gonna like no this goofy asshole's out here saying he's god and like shiva and all this shit like no no one's gonna vote for these people they're creepy and they smell weird so he became a meme all of the school kids it was funny like if the nhk or someone came up and they were like who would you vote for it would be hilarious if you were a little kid to say asahara shoko and then everyone, like the little kids at school, like they had their little recorders and they would do, 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 do. They would teach themselves the campaign song, the Shoko March. Okay, so like the own people running for the, for the dialogue became a meme and then they lost. And so Wasaharo literally said in response, we were screwed over by the Freemasons and by the Freemasons, he met the shadow cabal of uh, Jewish people because they were all violent anti-Semites and he said, because of this, the only path forward is the path of Vajrayana. We got to do with terror <laughs> because this is war now. We actually won, but they stole it from us. They stole the election from us and laughed at us. And now the only response. Oh, this has like, stop the steel energy. Okay, I see what you mean. <laughs> Okay. So once again, the cute, the QAnon people, uh, like Green or Bobert, like those people, yeah, they got a couple in. And what's happening on a on a local local level with like you know school boards and shit that's that's popping off. And yeah, the direct comparisons might end, but if you look at the narrative, Ohm's defeat, actual defeat, helped spur them. And man, boy, did they. It was not. That's when they really started ratcheting up, like the preaching the protocols of Zion is like group doctrine and everything was a Freemason plot. 
know, the paranoia just got really bad. Asahara's uh, psychological state was never that good. It wasn't great to begin with. Like his mind was, he wasn't like exactly healthy, you know, but boy, things, things got, things got a lot worse after that. Oh man. I mean, it's just like, I, I feel like like QAnon represents almost the worst of both worlds. Like not only do they have, not only is like kind of the, you know, the, the path to political success is being created. So like getting up and over, you can be a Q person, you can engage in conspiracy, conspiracy theories, and you can be just as successful as Bobert, Green, and maybe even Gosar. But at the same time, there's like this like narrative of we lost, stop the steal. Now it's the time for violence. So we're kind of getting almost, it almost sounds like we're getting the worst of both worlds. <laughs> so can you tell us, did, first of all, did Om ever end? Like what is, what is the, the end or the no. end of that story? If, if there's no. even an ending, no. No. Okay. So the subway attack happens, right? So that was uh, March 20th, 1995. Now, Om was responsible for another sarin attack in 1994, the Matsumoto sarin attack. At uh, New Year's Day, 1995, uh, the papers ran a story saying that they had found a certain chemical residue uh, in the soil right outside of Om's uh, massive compound at the foot of Mount Fuji, right? And so, like, basically, it had leaked that, like, whatever these big buildings were. We can't say for sure that they were making the sarin, but we can say for sure that there's no way that this particular chemical residue would be in the soil unless somebody nearby had been making sarin. <laughs> and it was like game over, right? So the, uh, the attack on the subways was partially just like a response to that. And uh, there's also like, depending on whose trial testimony you're listening to, there was uh, intel going around, like somebody had let it leak to Alm and to Asahara that they were about to get mass raided. So they went and did the dumbest thing possible and they cherry picked some shit out of protocols and they struck the heart of the government that they believed to be, you know, falsely occupied by some Zionist machine. Tell me if you've heard that one before. They went and they did that and then the mass raids actually fucking happened. Every facility got rolled up. They sent out like Japanese SWAT, the National Police Agency, like sent pretty much everyone out. Just simultaneous, just massive raids, right? They pushed as many, even just regular members through through the systems, through local police departments as they could. And membership plummeted. I was like, they were at like what? I was like 11,000 total in Japan, but there was only like, I think 1,100 Shukesha. But anyway, the membership obviously like went down because Om did terrorisms. So we couldn't be involved in that shit anymore. Okay, but like since then, membership has gone up. And I think like the totals right now are like 1650. They usually stay steady, like membership numbers, like modern now, like it's about 1650 between all three branches or whatever you want to call them. But like it never ended because you can go and you can watch uh, Tatsuya Mori's documentaries ANA2 which came out in like 1997, 1999, respectively. And they give you a bit of a behind the scenes look of what was going on after those mass raids, during those trials. Om was still operating 
and then there was like a year or so when they said that they weren't and then Joyu Fumihiro got let out of jail and then they rebranded all of like Shokuwasahara told Joyu to so they did that but all of has been around ever since and tell me if you've heard this before they've primarily been active online these past 20 years or so because they can't really just go out and say hey would you like to join OM like that's not gonna fly in Japan but if you go online and you just pretend to be like a, a yoga club or a book club that likes uh, weird new age shit or an astrology club or you know someone who's into like prophecies and weird conspiracy theories or whatever and like you know you start your own little group there and you start getting and funneling people in and uh, have like one-on-one conversations with them to where you can condition them to be more receptive to the doctrine that you're actually trying to lay down once you get them like really primed and get their minds all open and squishy you can then tell them that you are actually om and everything was a conspiracy and that's how OM is still around. They wouldn't be able to do that without the internet. It's it's almost like the being online gives you kind of the ability to be flexible, right? And create layers. Like as you as you kind of mentioned, it, it, what you just said kind of reminds me of Mark's kind of paper on pastel anon or the 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 yoga two q pipeline i I hate characterizing it like that it makes it sound so awful but that's kind of crazy i mean that's that's wild that they they sort of adapted to the online and then that adaption that sort of flexibility was creating these layers of obfuscation until you get to hey we're actually a cult and everything's a conspiracy these days they use uh 9-11 conspiracy theories uh to start priming them they can get them to go to like an actual uh, yoga class or meetup or whatever. It's usually uh, run out of somebody's apartment, an apartment that they've gotten somebody else to lease just so they can use it as what they might call a classroom. And then they'll go, or they'll rent like, you know, a yoga studio or something and they'll give it like a different name. And then if the student does like well enough and they, they're receptive enough and they form like, you know, like sort of a personal bond with their trainer or whatever. And they're like, okay, this is a mark, we got one. If they do well enough there, they're told they do well enough and they seem like they're really into it. Then they graduate to the different location. And then they're shown like all sorts of conspiracy theory bullshit. And 9-11 conspiracy theories are a big one. Because you have to get them to believe that 9-11 was an inside job and that it was, you know, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, blah, blah, blah. And then once they believe that, they're on the road to believing that the Saren attack was too. And if you get them to believe that the Saren attack was, then you can reveal yourself as Olive or Olive or whatever. Like you're almost like describing a process of radicalization. Like, um, Like you just, you start off with kind of a person that has I hate using this characterization, but like a looser understanding of reality or a more mystic understanding. And you kind of just, you know, over time, work them into, you know, greater and greater conspiracy theories. Is that, would that be an accurate interpretation or, you know, maybe, or like, go ahead. I don't know. Have you ever been lied to? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the human experience. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Have you ever known anyone who's ever been in like an abusive relationship? 
Uh, unfortunately, I have, yes. Okay. Well, you know, for, for some people, it's very easy to pretend to be whatever another person might want you or need you to be. And it's very easy to make them believe things that benefit you personally. For some people, that it's easy to, to do that with other people. It's it's very similar principle. Indoctrination, lying, conditioning, undue influence. You can call it all sorts of things. And in different environments, it might work a little differently, but essentially it's kind of, I mean, well, call it what you want. I mean, so when we start looking for signs of somebody being put on that track, right, of, of they're moving towards a direction that is, you know, moving into a high control group or moving into a high control belief. I, I, I don't know what, what the phrase would be, but how do we as, how, what do you, what do we look for? What do we monitor? Like, I almost, I almost feel like so much of our resources are put on the end product, like the person has already become a Nazi, they've already become a QAnon believer, they've already done, they've already engaged with the material and decided to internalize it. Like I, like almost like I, I remind, like remember our conversation with Shannon, like it was, like it was very much about the end product or we didn't, we didn't do a show on this, but like in conversation with like uh, my social worker friends, it's just like, it's always they they don't come to the social worker or the therapist in the middle of it, nor does the, that the social worker go and experience the middle of the path. It's always the end. It's always, you know, this person has, has you know, gone to jail because they committed a hate crime and now are kind of being assigned a social worker or being assigned, you know, a parole officer or somebody to work with them. But, you know, sorry about that story. Going back to my question, but how do we how do we sort of look for and monitor when somebody is in that process and in that pipeline? Is it like, is it even worthwhile to do it? And just, we yeah. just kind of have to wait for them to do something awful. You know, what is the sort of the suggestion or sort of the idea here? I personally have to believe that prevention and recovery are like two sides of the same coin. It's like, in the earlier days of the QAnon stuff, you know, like when I was trying to like raise hell, and then, you know, someone might take me seriously and they were like, well, what are we supposed to do? What's your plan? And I'm like, we could look at the Japanese response to the Ohm affair. We could try that as you had people who were like raising the alarms and you had these family members who were trying to get their loved ones out of Ohm. You had all of these journalists and, and all of these columnists really working together. And yeah, that even included like law enforcement and stuff working together to, to try to stop it from getting as bad as it did and then after it did get as bad as it did they all came together again and they they just joined up their little organizations and then a new one was founded on top of that it's like the japan society for cult prevention and recovery and the cult prevention part and the cult recovery part are treated like they're equally as important because the whole point is to make sure that something like the alma fair that never happened again. So you had the, the JSCPR, but then you also had the uh, the Om Shinrikyo uh, Family Association, which had been around since I think the late 80s, where the whole entire point was to, to give the families a place, like an actual professional support group, a secure one that had been vetted, 
where like they could talk about their feelings like losing their children or their moms or their dads or whatever to this type of organization and then you also had something called the canary association the canaries and the canaries those were for former believers where they had a safe place to talk about things that only they would understand and they were given like you know actual like resources who helped them recover and help them adjust but then another part of the jscpr's entire thing is that they have like these education initiatives and they'll, they'll put out pamphlets and they'll go to universities and they'll just distribute literature and make sure that there are pamphlets around town that says, here's what to look for. If a group is acting like this, if a group is getting your, is getting your friend to act like this, like this might be a bad group. And here are maybe some steps you can try to take to help it from like prevent it from getting worse and cut it off. But like, we, we don't do that here it's still so hard to just get people to take things like cults and and manipulation tactics and things like that seriously. And you have to give yourself away to melodramatics and histrionics just to get the attention of people who should already know these things and should already be helping fucking get that literature and, and those educational shorts made and distributed to like a wider audience. I don't know. So could you kind of elaborate on what was considered? So you kind of showed us what prevention looks like, you know, be aware, be, you know, be cognizant of, of, of these signs. But kind of the two questions I have is what does recovery look like? And what was the government's role in it? Was this all done through kind of the private sector and through sort of society or did the Japanese government kind of have this strong role involvement? The the Japanese government debated over whether or not to apply old laws that could technically outlaw Om Shinrikyo period. And then they decided not to. And I'm trying to think. And then uh, like part of the anti-Om laws was to put together a a fund for the survivors of the sarin attacks and you know victims of Ohm's violence i guess it's like the the government's response to 9-11 in a way you know like they, they put some money up and then it wasn't enough and then it started to just dwindle but like oh well good luck <laughs> i was forever ago sorry about it no uh, the things like the jscpr and the canaries and uh, the the families fund and even the victims fund are the families association and uh, even the, the Victims Association now, they're mostly private sector. There's coordination with like local, I guess you could say governments, you know, like in like wards and stuff, like the police there, but. Um, I mean, what, like, I, I kind of struggled to understand why in 2022, it's so hard for, for folks to kind of do this, like to organize this on their own. Like, I know there's the, the subreddit where people can kind of talk about having family members join Q and, and sort of yeah. the damage that's been done. But like, I, I really kind of struggle to understand why in America, why we can't kind of do this or why it's been such an uphill battle for, you know, such an uphill battle. Like I, I because like the expertise is there, like you, you have people like Steve Hansen, And you have a lot of, at least in Colorado, you have a lot of practices kind of devoted to 
to focusing on people who have joined calls. Like you have, I think one practice I looked at in doing the research for the show was a mix of MDs and social workers. So MDs and LCSWs. Take back your life recovery. I don't know if they're based in Colorado, but it was just like, like just looking at different practices here in Denver. But I mean, what in your, in your view, like why, why is it such an uphill battle? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand. Maybe I'm like just naive and, and still an amateur, but I just, I just don't understand. <laughs> it's something I don't understand either. Maybe that's also because I'm an amateur and I'm not like a smooth talker. So I can't, I can't, I can't get you a government grant. Sorry. So I'm pretty worthless when it comes to the fight that apparently like the only fight that matters, which is fun. No, it is an uphill battle. You've got the expertise there. I mean, there used to be even be an inpatient. I think there still is at least one dedicated uh, inpatient. I think it's Wellspring, if it's still. To recover from cultic spiritual abuse. And then, you know, we have, you know, little things like what you're talking about. And then we have something great with uh, Take Back Your Life that's just getting up and going. If anybody wants to go check that out, maybe donate to it. That'd be pretty cool. But no, like for a while there, if you remember, and especially like once Trump took office and then uh, Charlottesville, uh, you know, a Unite the Right rally happened and stuff, CVE and exit programs were like the Wild West. It was like a gold rush, you know? Everybody wanted a, a cure for hate. Everybody wanted an easy answer to, you know, get their precious baby boys off of 4chan or whatever which opened up the field to a lot of stuff. I'm not really qualified to talk about that. When I say the field, I don't feel like I'm really part of the gang because I only spent, some people spend their entire lives getting a fancy piece of paper so that they can go and get paid a bunch of money to rewrite the same article about Adam Waffen that came out like two years ago. I just spent like three years making a total jackass out of myself to like try to get people to stop making Jonestown jokes long enough to start really talking about what we can do to help get uh, Pep and Grandma away from QAnon before something really bad happens. And then something really bad happened. And then something really, really bad happened. And now everyone's, it's like the Wild West again. I also think like, some of it is like, so I was having like a discussion with my therapist friend and she, we got on this topic. I told her that I was talking to Sarah Hightower. We're going to discuss like a lot of like the idea of like, you know, pulling people out of movements and whatnot or not pulling, but getting them out of cults and, and stuff like that. And we happened upon the topic of COVID, right? It's 2022. It's, COVID times. And she mentioned something that was kind of blew my mind. And it just kind of has stuck with me that she was talking about a certain patient that, you know, is upper middle class, has money, educated. And, but the patient kind of admitted that they were taking ivermectin instead of getting vaccinated. And then not the pill ivermectin, right? Not the the human pharmaceutical pharmaceutical but derisively the horse paste which kind of blew my mind like I, I I know that like like anybody can join a cult it's just a matter of belief but it just 
to have it like throw, like put into my face, like here's somebody who's successful. They're going to this upper middle class, you know, therapist, you know, in a fancy building in Denver. And, and they're giving into this conspiracy theory of if I eat enough horse paste, then I won't get the, the Rona. But I mean, like, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to trivialize, but it's just like, no, no, no. like, it just seems like just getting somebody challenging their beliefs and then getting them to, you know, say, admitting that they're wrong or acting like kind of a, either a, a vocal admission of being wrong or a quiet admission is, is very challenging. And it, it kind of crosses the bounds of, I guess it's a belief. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be tied to finances or professional success or whatever. I, have you ever heard of Minecraft? It's yes, a little it, game. It's a, it's, I don't know. It's a little indie. I don't know if you've ever heard it, of it. It's, it's just a small Mine, indie Minecraft. game. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah I, I think I've heard of it. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it comes pretty installed with like solitaire. Unlike with anyway. So there was the creator of Minecraft. He goes by Notch. There was, there was this brief little period there when he was flirting with QAnon stuff because he was already... You know, for, for listeners who might not know, the creator of the enormously popular video game uh, Minecraft, Notch, he got bought out, I think, by Microsoft and he no longer gets uh, credited for like his own creation because that dude got really gross and really racist pretty quick and he, he doubled and tripled down on it. So like... He's he's worth like billions of dollars, but he's like the loneliest dude in the world, and he's just off doing his own thing. So like that dude was flirting with QAnon, and the QAnon people were trying really hard to get not just like an advertising tower. And I jumped in, and I started like I was almost there. I almost got through to like rich Fedora Minecraft man, <laughs> and then like. The dudes I was working with at the time, they were kind of like trolls and they wouldn't like shut up long enough to like maybe just let me be on the same autistic wavelength as the Minecraft man. But man, I was so close. He was so close to admitting he might be wrong about that. And that was like, oh, it's hard, but you can do it. Maybe if you can get on the same wavelength, talk to them in their language. No guarantees. You know, that's that's kind of to, to build on that. Like, that's what I find is so challenging is like sitting there like explaining to people that anyone can join a cult anyone can have extremist beliefs like it's kind of free of of finances and and professional success and academic success like i it's it's almost become a fucking trope in my life where somebody will inevitably at a social event inevitably mention that i have a podcast and then we start talking about the content of the podcast and they're like, and then event, it'll just become something like, oh, I will never join a cult. I'll never join a terrorist group. And then and I just sit there and I'm like, you know, Bin Laden was a billionaire. You know, like, like all the members of Al Qaeda were engineers, like as smart people. Or, or you switch footing to the, to the white supremacist tradition. And it's like, oh, Wesley Swift was an accomplished preacher. Or J.B. Stoner was an attorney. Richard Spencer is a a doctorate from Duke or whatever the fuck. But I just find like there's so many communications challenges as like researchers or people who are kind of adjacent to it. It it just makes me want to just, you know, throw like just hide under my desk and cry for a while. (laughs) When like one of one of the people who's been like the most successful with like, you know, messaging, like getting the right sort of messaging out there 
and reaching a broad enough audience to like uh, make them otherwise like you know the Stakeums guy Nathan like Nathan tweeted the 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 frozen meat empathy screed from the Stakeums brand account and made more people like see their influenced pet cups as human again overnight he he reached more people overnight with viral fucking <laughs> Mr. Rogers Stakeums time than I think most of us had in like the months or maybe years prior <laughs> isn't it fucked up isn't it <laughs> okay and then like I'm out here like look I can get you in touch with I can get you hooked up with the, the the people fighting cults in Japan, the people who fought former OM members, sarin attack survivors, like the people who founded the JSCPR and the people on board, uh, that like the board of directors and stuff. I, I, I can help refer you to these people. Okay, I've met some of them in person. Like it's, I can help you. <laughs> like crickets. And then someone just has to come along and say, I have an Emmy. It was Russia. It was a PSYOP. It was Russia. If you disagree, you're you're part of the PSYOP. Give me $25,000 because I'm starting a recovery organization to save our parents, to save your pet peps. And I'm like, uh uh-huh. And that got more heat. Like an actual liar. An actual grifter who did not (laughs) know the first actual thing about QAnon and that grifter was able to get more heat and get more people to buy into their narrative and their mythos and their weird fucked up hero's journey. I mean, I mean, you touch on something that's kind of interesting, like as researchers, like the constant researchers and, and sort of people in the field like this constant struggle to not only communicate you know what we're engaged on but also getting through the grift wall or the fucking like the grifters like it's just I mean that's it's just the most frustrating thing like I just like talking to normies and it's like to your point to your point it's just like they're more influenced by stakeums and the blue anon adjacent weird grifters. Okay. Yeah, but like the Stakeums, Nathan was doing it right. Like, yeah, it's sad that it had to be like this the absurdity or the novelty of something like that coming from like a Stakeums account. Like, but like Nathan did it right. And I mean, like, he's really cool and good. It's just like, it, it is a bit disheartening that it, you know it had to be like just because of the novelty of it coming from a checkmark twitter brand account for a frozen meat product <laughs> I mean, but, but like he actually did good well i mean why is that though like i just like that i think that's one of the struggles that i really have a hard time like understanding or explaining to myself like why why normies can't conceive of that they could be a victim of high influence of undue influence or there's like, it almost seems like a lot of people, it's either a lack of empathy or, or a sort of internal denial. Like I don't want to empathize with QAnon people because they, they believe in a dumb thing, or it's like a denial of, you know, if, 
you know, it's expressed in very various ways, but the most common one seems to be, I couldn't believe this, right? I can't believe something as ridiculous as Q. Yeah. And then kind of, and, yeah, go ahead. Oh, it's also hard for a lot of people to have empathy, I guess, because like, QAnon stuff, like, it is gross. <laughs> it is, I don't, it's not just something a little quirky. Like, it is hardcore anti-Semitism and like the hatred like I talked about it tickling the parts of your brain that trigger your existential fight or flight and tickles the part of your brain that releases you know the hate chemicals and stuff but it's it I mean no one needs me to say that it's racist and gross and violent but yeah that that also makes it harder for like normies who you know have enough sense to know that like okay no that's bad (laughs) that's bad man it becomes harder for them to empathize and you also don't want to press the undue influence thing or the manipulation thing too hard because you don't want to just give people free passes you know oh they they do yeah all right you you fell down a rabbit hole and you you did you did genuinely believe all of these things and you didn't you know Either you didn't listen when people tried to say that it's just uh, bacon wrapped protocols for Facebook boomers, and then then you did end up believing that the Jews control the world and the banks, and that white genocide is real, and that the vaccine is a is up, and blah 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 blah. But like you still did believe and perpetuate those things. So if you just roll up after and say it wasn't poor little baby's fault. They were blamewashed. People are not going to be on board with that. And like, you can't expect people to be on board with that because that taking it too far in that direction is not cool. Like that's bullshit. That's kind of interesting. The, the need for accountability for somebody's beliefs, but at the same time, striking a middle ground between, you know, holding somebody accountable and then not holding them accountable. Like, you know, oh, you did join this group. But at the same time, not being forgiving. Like, I, can you can we can we explore that a bit? Like, how do we how how do we hold somebody accountable for their belief in Q without alienating them? I mean, you can you can look at what different sorts of groups have done in, in the recovery effort. You have uh, look at what like Life After Hate, Hope Not Hate, Exit USA, Exit UK, Exit Australia, New Zealand. It'll go those exit groups. And it is like, you know, you do successfully like get someone out. That's just like not the end of it. Like usually, and they the good ones won't do it in front of the cameras. So usually the process will begin with, you know, taking them maybe into places and communities that you've prearranged and it's cool for you to take them there. Like they're they're expecting you. And then like you take them and you help reacclimate them. And it's like, here's how we can begin to repair some of the damages that you caused by actively perpetuating like this violent racist bullshit. You know, I've known quite a few former members of cults and hate groups or whatever, right? Of arranging a visit to like a synagogue or a talk with a rabbi or, you know, a brunch with the girls things like that 
like there has to be, I guess you could say, like if you're calling for some sort of accountability, you're not telling this person to go like, you know, give like, just like lash themselves in public. But like, there is a process. Like you had Shannon on, that's, this is literally what Shannon does. But accountability kind of starts at home. I keep thinking like in my head, I can't help but go back to the very online nature of Q and God, it just, it just like, it just the amount of work ahead of a lot of people is just immense. Like, like I, I think about it, like in terms of my, my job and how kind of like a, an adversarial kind of thinking. And I think like, oh my gosh, Q is able to spread itself online and it can just literally get hundreds of thousands of millions of people. And then I listen to you, I listen to Shannon, I listen to my social worker friends and my psychiatrist friends. And it's just like, like it, it takes months or years just to, to bring one person out or bring two people out. And it's just the scale of the problem is just, it, it's literally giving me an anxiety attack. Unfortunately, it's just like, how do you, as somebody, you know, how do you kind of conceptualize that, that problem of scale? Is it just like, you just kind of have to shrug your shoulders and whoever you can, you can bring out, you, you can bring out, or, you know, how do you, how do you understand that problem? I used to just jump in. I would jump in like, you show me a pit, show me a bad scene. I will be reckless and, and very stupid and over-emotional and uh, self-destructive. And I'll just, I'll jump in and see what I can do because I don't see anyone else in here and we're supposed to meet them where we're at I've been told so let's okay I'll go let's do this that that also (laughs) that's not gonna work even if you're trained if you're trained you you might know how to navigate it better and you might know to avoid it in the first place but you're right it's I don't even know where to start man but it's also not like my job to, to to know where to start because there are people who go to school for a very long time just to get fancy pieces of paper to rewrite things that have already been written, but there are also a lot of people who go to school for a very long time to, like, you know, jump out in front and, and be at the forefront of getting shit done. So, and fortunately, I know a lot of people who are actually jumping out at the forefront and actually working to try to make things better and get shit done, and I, I didn't feel as hopeful I don't, I didn't, the the bit of hope I have today, I I didn't have like two or three years ago. So So it's like, uh, I I don't have to solve the world's problems today. So like we actually got good people on it. I feel really good about that. That's good. I mean, having hope is kind of, I guess the, the, I want to say the first step to kind of, I mean, it's the first step and like it's having hope. It's like, it's, it's a good thing. Like I just felt like, I think from 2018, I mean, actually, earlier than that, since Charlottesville, kind of my hope of <laughs> my hope has kind of plummeted because it's just like, you know, it's, you know, I think it was the first time seeing that footage on Vice of people saying Jews will not replace us. And it's like, it just looks like what I imagine a Klan rally would look like, but all their faces are out, which was, which, yeah. which, which means like, like you're not wearing a mask. That's like a fuck you, come catch us. Like, it's just, like they don't care. I, I I think to your point, like recently I've had a lot more hope. And I think a lot of that has to do with like being in a, a social worker in a, a psychiatrist space. And it's like, they're very like aware 
of like people where like they're aware and they're getting training and getting practice with people who are coming out. Unfortunately, in most cases, it's like people who have violated the law, who have gone to prison and now are trying to repair their life. But I mean, it's, it's, there's hope there, right? It just, it feels like it's on the upswing. Yeah, it's a, it's QAnon stuff, like, it's an accelerations problem now. I mean, it always was, but man, oh, it's just grown so yeah. much. And it was so easy. Bad actors to amplify or direct, jump in, further radicalize. And I, one of the reasons I feel a bit better today than I did a few years ago is because today I know a few more people who also watched some of these accelerationist groups go into various QAnon spaces and start killing them on like Christian identity and saint killing them and stuff. Oh, it's like back in the day, I would try talking about it. Like, and it was like, someone was either like, well, she's being melodramatic or whatever. But then like now I know some pros who are like, no, yeah, we watch it. Yeah, that, uh-huh. Yeah, they're there, there, they're in there. They admitted to it here. <laughs> yeah, we watched it. And I'm like, oh, cool. Well, you're actually really professionals. Get, get the fuck out in front of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think to your point, like, like a lot more people are cognizant of extremism. Like it's like, like I, I just take my, like, I, I don't mean to be like self-centered, but like taking myself as an example and like networking with really good researchers on Twitter. Like, I don't, like, I, I think like following you on Twitter has been kind of weirdly influential because it, it put me on a path of reading Stein reading Lifton. You basically Lifton pilled me. I get that a lot. <laughs> I don't get paid much, but I, I get that a lot. I get like all of these, like, like the people, like when you think about this group or this threat, who are the first few people who come to mind, chances are they probably said at some point, oh, Hightower taught me about Lifton. Hightower made me think about this. Hightower did this. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm like the Steve Parrish of this, but so the Courtney love of this. <laughs> so when I I had a, when I wrote a request email to Lifton's people to like bring him on the show, I, I had to delete. Chelsea made me delete the the word Lifton pilled because apparently sending that to a publisher is not a good look. Be like, I've been Lifton pilled. Please come on my podcast. I, I just I just hope as a, as a, like this ninety five year old guy, he knows like how many young researchers have just been eating up like his, his work I just I just hope like somewhere wherever he is he's just like just giving everybody the thumbs up like good work guys <laughs> or something <laughs> I um, um get Lifton on like a twitch debater so <laughs> getting Lifton on like oh god one of those douchebags like like Hassan Piker are like <laughs> Lifton debate destiny don't 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 do that don't don't send anyone to that guy he sucks but it's like get lifting on some of these twitch streams oh my gosh oh. to the youth i'm sure they love him i'm sure they'd like me i mean like social media like in some ways has been like super positive like learning it's about christian been... okay. no i mean like like learning about the christian identity movement that can only be yeah that can only be considered positive in like maybe one way and for every one of you there's like a God knows how many of the others. 
my oh, heroes keep turning into turfs <laughs> you're talking about like getting like i hope lifted knows that all of these young researchers are looking up to him lifting on social media and i'm like no if you get robert j lifton on twitter he's gonna start talking about like he's gonna start talking about like bathrooms and stuff it's i watched it happen to taro takimoto the founder of jscpr who survived like a sarin attack a vx attack and an anthrax attack i think from ohm and i'm watching it happen to another cult expert um <laughs> like let's let's keep <laughs> let's keep lifting offline and we can communicate with him. We can, you can interview him via like carrier pigeon. So I think we have gone through all the questions I had that I've written down. As you know, per Twitter, the legit question list got deleted and then Chelsea found out and restored them because oh, uh, the one that I had written very kind of- <laughs> it was, it was 90% wrestling questions. And why do, like, for instance, like why does 7-Eleven in Japan kick so much ass versus 7-Eleven here in the United States, which is, I, I don't know if you know this, but I fell into 7-Eleven TikTok, Japanese 7-Eleven TikTok. So it's yeah, it, it, it's literally people just going into Japanese 7-Elevens. And I'm very jealous because they could get like rice balls and stuff. Do you, do you, have you ever heard of a podcast called the Combini Boys? No, I haven't. A Japanese word for uh, the convenience stores and stuff is a Combini. So the Combini boys, they're, uh, they're two expats and they have this really awesome podcast and it's just about how cool the convenience stores are and what the convenience stores have going on that much. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> no, it's great. But I'll tell you a little secret. I actually struggled to make onigiri, like the, the rice balls. Like I have, it's the only thing in my kitchen that gives me like pain. Like I just, for some reason I can never get it right and it's just um, it's just I just make rice and then I I you know ball it up and then kind of fry it kind of not fry it but put it on the iron skillet and it just for some reason I can never get it correct it just ends up falling apart and I just kind of just standing over the sink just putting rice in, just eating <laughs> poorly made buy some azumirin what was it azu yeah azumirin get to get like some sweet rice vinegar you, you're going to need something to help, like, actually, like, like make the rice kind of, like, bond and stick together. And you're going to need some seaweed. You're going to need some dried seaweed. You'll need, like, a nori wrapper or something. That'll also help hold it together. And it'll need to dry out okay. a bit. But if you're just, like, making some rice and smushing it together, <laughs> that's, no, that's not going to work. Like, you're going to need, like, some ajumir. Just smushing, like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> like, some, some sweet rice vinegar. Um, it doesn't change the taste too much, but, like, you'll, you, you'll need something like that. Or you could like use some glutinous rice glutinous if you don't have, rice. yeah, get like some, oh man, I think like some botan, get some glutinous rice. Or if you have mm. any mochi, you can put a little bit of mochi into the rice cooker with the regular rice if you don't have glutinous rice and it'll kind of have the same effect. So for my second fun question, I have to ask you about wrestling. Okay. So first, who's your favorite wrestler and is it Mick Foley? like favorite wrestler from which promotion and which era who are we talking about because if we're talking about right oh. now it's uh njf oh man i haven't kept up with it so like basically my wa- actually watching wrestling peaked during the attitude era and then during covid i got back into jim Cornette's podcast because mm-hmm. i i just like just working from home like i found out like 
I just needed something to play in the background. And I started listening to Jim Cornette and then Vice's The the Dark Side of the Ring. And I just, I just like it, it, those two things just got me back into the lore of wrestling. And just like, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what what's it about the history of wrestling that just kind of ticks with me. It just works. Like maybe it's like Jim Cornette, the way that he sells and he kind of every every like podcast is basically an extended promo i i, I just got back into the, the, the wrestling history which is kind of refreshing yeah <laughs> so I, I, I would say oh go ahead i hated wrestling during the attitude era because i was like a little girl and i live here in like the middle of nowhere arkansas and i come from like a poor family so i felt like it was expected of me and everyone else really liked it but then if you didn't like it you were probably the type of person who made fun of wrestling fans. And if you were making fun of wrestling fans and we were all rednecks and inbreds, shoeless, toothless, morons, mouth breathers, all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, that's not me. I hate this. I'm in fifth grade. Screw you. I'm smart. I know what Om Shirikyo is. I watched me on Genesis Evangelion. Oh. I'm smart. I don't like this crap. And uh, wait, 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 wait. So in fifth grade, you're that's watching a, that's Neon an exaggeration oh it was it was actually like six or seven i just i just i have an image in my head of you yeah. as a precocious sixth grader <laughs> just be like hey hey guys let's let's get in the robot <laughs> it was and then like and then later in like high school my mom remarried an asshole and he sucks and i <laughs> my mom remarried like this jerk and he was like sort of a beefhead back then and he was really into wrestling and so it would when it would come on UPN there was one tv in the house because we were still poor and it, he would watch it on that and I came in one night and I saw like Eddie Guerrero just like screwing around in the ring and I was like oh who's that and then my stepdad I don't know probably said something racist because he sucks and then I watched an Eddie Guerrero match and then I was like I think I understand what this is now and I hate myself for not watching it sooner because this is awesome. <laughs> so Eddie Guerrero got me into professional wrestling. And then I understood that it was just like, it's like a soap opera with spandex. It's like anime. <laughs> it's like live action anime bullshit. Yeah. Like and you have like characters and they're, they're, they're hamming it up for the audience. Like it's, it's, it's theater. Yeah. I, I, I don't know the words to describe it, but like when like Mick Foley, some of his peak ECW interviews, promos, and then some of his work in, in, in the W, what was then the WWF. I, I don't know. It just like touched me in a way that like, like very few pieces of content or media affect me. Like, like the, I think I put it in a thread on Twitter, the one where it's Cactus Jack's introduction to the WWF. So at that point he had been through WCW and the ECW and all the fans know who Cactus Jack is. And it's just, everything was so perfect. The way that the dude love introduced everybody. And then Triple H is like selling like, ah, oh, Cactus Jack, big threat. But I, I just like, it just, there's something about like the, the interviews and sort of his style. I mean, I, I've heard he's like a completely like nice guy. He's like, all the oh, yeah. fame has never gotten to his head or anything. It's I I know a couple of people who have worked with Mike Foley. Yeah. So I think we have we're near the time we we've answered all the questions. 
talked about wrestling, talked about rice balls. So usually when we end the show, we try to do, we kind of open it up for the guests. So leave us with something to think about, something to chew on, something to, that will kind of leave us as the audience and the, and the interviewer, it's something to think about, something to say, like, wow, that, that's, a, that's something that I really kind of want to think about and grow upon. Man, don't put me on spoilers like this. You know what every single member of Omshin Rikyo had in common? No, what did they have in common? They wanted to save the world. They loved the world. Originally. Nobody joined Omshin Rikyo because they thought they were going to end up, you know, taking the diamond vehicle out of Sarentown. It was that love and just that open-mindedness. And I guess... What some people might cynically say is, I don't know, naivety or mushy-mindedness or a certain type of mindset or whatever. Like, I prefer to think of it as sort of purity, but that sort of purity can easily be exploited. Every single member of Omshin Rikyo, like, they, they walked into that wanting to be good. People don't really think about, and I get it, because, like, it's in the past and you move on or whatever, and it was never important over here, but like, if you're thinking about how people end up in groups like QAnon, or ISIS, or fucking Adam Waffen, or like O9A, you think about how people ended up in Ulm, and if you can understand some of that, some of that sort of thinking, without having like an opinion on it one way or the other, but just simply sort of understand it, Maybe someone smarter than me could do something with that. I don't know. But I, I, I think there are still gaps in like academia and, and whatnot that I would like to help people fill and, you know, get this stuff to people who are smarter than me and people who like, you know, <laughs> didn't come back when they heard uh, these people were going to be executed, try to make people care, like people who like actually chose this and chose to devote their life to this and stayed in school for a billion years and got that nice piece of paper or stayed writing articles about it and you know got those accolades like that's what i wanted to do when i first started and like three years ago if you told me i was gonna be like talking to you on a show for the audience that you have i would have been like no i'd like to find a way to make it about ohm again but I, I, I can't do it on my own. So I hope I made myself sound sufficiently crazy. Thanks for having me on, Scott. That was Sarah Hightower. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for being on the show, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. This is awkward. <laughs>